Welcome to Truth Jihad Radio, the all-out struggle for truth on the Internet airwaves. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting since 2006. You can support this endeavor by going to truthjihad.com and clicking on the subscribe at Substack link, or you could always just uh, drop a tip in the PayPal jar. Today, I'm bringing on one of my favorite dissident writers. I've been reading his stuff for the better part of two decades, and his latest piece is called The Sheer Joy of Afghanistan. That's not something you would see in the New York Times op-ed section. I'm speaking with Israel Shamir. He's uh, a very erudite fellow uh, from Russian-Jewish-Israeli background, uh, currently uh, Christian, and I believe in Moscow. And his article, The Sheer Joy of Afghanistan, uh, basically goes ahead and just uh, openly celebrates the Taliban victory over the occupiers. And I think that's a perspective that deserves to be heard, so let's talk about it. Welcome, Israel Shamir. Congratulations on another great article. Yeah, thank you very much, Kevin. It's really wonderful to, uh, to have somebody to uh, enjoy uh, the events of Afghanistan with, because so many people are upset, so many people are sorry, so many people are anxious, but, they, you know, some of us should enjoy it, and they think we really may and should enjoy it. You begin your article saying the Taliban's victory is our victory, yours and mine. Uh, Non-Muslim, non-Pashtun folk, too, should be celebrating. And I'm actually Muslim, but I'm not a huge uh, fan of the Taliban's approach to Islam, or at least the way they approached it back 20 years ago. But I still like to see brave people uh, standing up against foreign invasions and occupations. and So that's something I think that, as you say, can unite Muslims, non-Muslims, and pretty much everybody else with a sense of justice. Yes, absolutely. And especially now, you know, we had now the full year or even more of, I would call, hypochondric news. News about illness, about sickness, about vaccines, about uh, uh, how we should preserve ourselves. And, you know, it was so sickening, after all, all this year of speaking only about uh, diseases. Um, for a writer, it was especially frustrating, you know, because uh, I'm, you know, I, I'm not built for writing about diseases. Uh, that's not something I like. And uh, the feeling was that we are so helpless that basically the only thing we can do is just to wait that somebody will uh, give us um, a shot of uh, some kind of medicine to survive. All that was so sickening. And now all of a sudden we come to normal masculine discourse of men who take arms and uh, liberate their own country. I mean, it is so kind of wonderfully old-fashioned. Uh, I, I, something that we are going away from the cul-de-sac, uh, from the impasse that we got into, when, uh, away from this so-called progress. Uh, you know, Kevin, for a long time, I had the feeling that progress is wonderful. Me being basically a man of the left, we are sort of, you know, we believe in progress. But uh, um, progress brought us into such disaster 
that now I says well, I, I say I mean isn't it wonderful that somebody is doing things old style and that was what was specially nice about this Taliban victory that's right it's definitely an, an old style resistance movement uh, and they certainly managed to win uh, with technology that was obviously not even close to what they were up against. Maybe that's a good inspiration for those of us who aren't so sure that technology is always the answer to everything. Uh, personally, I've sometimes thought that maybe technological progress really should have stopped at its pinnacle, which was the invention of the bicycle in the mid-19th century. <laughs> and since then, it's all been all downhill. Um, and, of course, that's very retrogressive. And, and you mentioned the kind of masculine values of people standing up to defend their country against invaders. And of course, that's very retrogressive and, and considered politically incorrect these days. And it seems there is a gendered kind of interpretation going on here where there's almost something feminine about those who want to remake Afghanistan as a mirror of the safe and secure and sexually liberated and woke pro-LGBTQ West uh, which it kind of reminds me of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, that Ken Casey novel in the film in which the kind of uh, hyper-masculine and uh, fun-loving, uh, freedom-loving main character is confined in a mental hospital and controlled by uh, the big nurse who is kind of embodying a certain kind of feminine control freak uh, safety mania and running an insane asylum. And I, th I think our Western culture is becoming that is insane asylum. And the Taliban are on the side of, uh, what was the guy's name? McMurphy, I think, the hero of that, that novel, who is rebelling. Yes. I, oh, yes. Um, I think it was Nurse uh, Fleischer. Nur who was Nurse Ratchet, the, I think, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I remember this film more than the book. And uh, that was uh, was Jack Nicholson, one of those great uh, movies of old days. Also, now you would never see anything of this sort. That you know, a man uh, who succeeds to fight against an oppressive woman that is probably extremely politically incorrect in present times. And you know, Americans decided to bring to Afghanistan as they bring to all the world. All the perversions, which for some reason they say we should really follow. And they even put on the embassy the rainbow flag of LGBT or whatever. And um, I thought about it, that that was actually the flag that was removed by Taliban. People get sick after all, that they are all the time being pushed into all kinds of sexual um, acts of totally revolting nature. And uh, from this point of view, I would say uh, there is definitely uh, gender, let's say, or sex, if you want, uh, point in uh, victory of Taliban. That's men who do not, are not ashamed of being men. They don't mind being called masculine, and they care about their own women. You know, it's one of those really ugly things that they tried to pretend for many years that men of Afghanistan mistreat their women, and that's why uh, Americans should come and help those women. I mean, it is so silly. I mean, no males ever anywhere do harm to their females. 
you can't even you don't think that a bear a he bear would uh, mistreat a she bear no he wouldn't why would he nor do men neither americans nor afghanis afghanistan people uh, nobody does so this very normal thing that normal relations between men and women became so distorted in the united states and in the dominant discourse of the west so from this point of view also it's very nice to see that some normal sensible uh, relationship between sexes uh, comes to the fore. And of course, that's very politically incorrect uh, in, in Western thought today. It seems that the the basic Islamic precept, which of course plays out very differently in different Islamic cultures, is one of uh, sexual modesty. And I, I see this as a solution to the problem that, uh, that René Girard describes when he says that human societies are always vulnerable to falling apart in chaos because of the problem of mimetic desire, where people uh, desire what other people have and what other people desire, and they essentially end up in these rivalries with envy driving uh, ever-escalating rivalries, and that tends to blow up the society unless there's there's some kind of a solution. And the traditional solution, he says, is scapegoating, where the society falls on some uh, designated patsy and, and lynches him and then that patsy the lynching becomes the memory of what later becomes a sort of pagan cult uh because it restores order in the society so uh, that that theory which i think has a lot going to it uh of course he's a christian and he believes that the sacrifice of jesus was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices but of course it hasn't worked out that way in islam we deal with that problem by enjoining modesty in all ways to make sure that in the public sphere there's a kind of a, a muting of of desire. So you don't have these uh, escalating cascades of mimetic desire uh, destroying the societies. And so everybody is basically supposed to be modest. The outsides of residences are modest, so you don't have people envying your house. Uh, the uh, women especially dress modestly because, of course, the desire is mostly a male thing. The male gaze desires the female uh, physical form, and so you cover that form one way or another uh, with cultural codes about it. And I, I think that all works very well. And the West doesn't get that. The West is insisting on unleashing mimetic desire for purposes of, of you know, commercial advertising and such, not to mention the actual sex, sex business, uh, pornography and, and, uh, and the sex industry, as they call it. And, and so this is a real cultural clash. And I think the West is imploding uh, for these uh, René Girardian reasons. And Islam is emerging as the obvious alternative. And the Taliban may not be the best kind of sales pitch for Islam, but I think what they're doing is one version of what Islam does really well, which is maintain a peaceful, tranquil society through modesty. That is uh, definitely true. But what is really, for, for a non-Muslim like me, what is really very encouraging in this victory of Islam is that the people who believe in God uh, one, and they uh, were un unashamedly be religious, believing people. That is also very nice. Amen. Because uh, <laughs> you, uh, you know, we are scared nowadays to say uh, we believe in God. That is something that we're not supposed to say because it's not sufficiently inclusive. Uh, they say, 
But, um, you know, people who do, who do say they believe in God, and that's really a wonderful thing, because after all, all people who believe in God can find a lot of things together, even if they believe in different approaches. I remember in Jerusalem, where I live uh, part of my life and part of my time, uh, the, uh, the government decided to promote a gay parade. And, you know, all religious forces of the uh, holy city and that means the orthodox Jews and the Muslims and the Christians, all of them work together against this parade. Well, it didn't help, obviously, because the government insisted and they said, well, you have to have it, you know, that's no, no way around. And they did, they went through. But I remember that was very kind of good thing to see that Muslims, Christians, and Jews find uh, this kind of common uh, cause to, to uh, fight for. Uh, from, uh, and uh, I remember that Muslims were very good about uh, coming to agreement. And then um, when there was an attack on Al-Aqsa by the Jews, then the Christians supported uh, uh, Muslims against uh, the attackers and, and the Orthodox Jews also uh, came uh, into support against the kind of modernizing Jews. Uh, so basically people of different faiths uh, can work together quite all right because the differences between us are important but not that important that we can't solve together the problems that modernity uh, offers to us. Well, modernity seems to be now based on a, a kind of a, a extreme version of liberalism that holds up all kinds of kind of bizarre uh, sexual ideas and practices as the epitome of freedom. And then, of course, the freedom of billionaires to run societies uh, without interference from people devoted to the common good is another part of that philosophy of freedom. And, and to people like you and me, this looks decadent. It doesn't look like it's a kind of uh, anything that could be built to last. Absolutely, I agree. I also think that uh, mankind went through such periods of time uh, in the past, and it was always before the total collapse. Whenever people say, well, it doesn't matter, we can have boys dressed as girls and girls dressed as boys, uh, that was, that's usually something that happens before the collapse. And after the collapse, nobody already remembers about all those silly things. And uh, Taliban is doing good things, you know. I also liked all the uh, first, let's say, proposals um, they decided uh, to stop loans, to forbid uh, loans w uh, with um, interest. Uh, they decided to stop uh, narcotics. All those things, I think, are very good. Right. Um, well, what do you think about Trump uh, wanting to get out of Afghanistan? And it looked as though his generals wouldn't let him. There were some stories in uh, a couple of those tell-all books about Trump there was one in particular, I think that was uh, Bob Woodward's book, Fear, in which he described how they, uh, he, Trump's advisors and especially the, the military and National Security Council people had rigged up an event that was designed to sort of brainwash Trump into going along with their program of staying in Afghanistan and so on. And so they took him 
to a kind of a special national security bunker to flatter his pride at being the commander in chief. And they showed him a bunch of PowerPoints and they gave him a pep talk. And afterwards, Trump just responded, what are you talking about? We can't even come up with a few billion dollars and fix our infrastructure. And you want to keep throwing all this money away. And so these generals then kind of unanimously uh, despised Trump and, and called him names, uh, imbecile and moron and things like that. And so it, it appears that they they stopped Trump from getting his way, which would have been to withdraw. And But now Biden has been able to do it. And, and you mentioned this in your article. What, why do you think that Biden was able to get away with it, but Trump wasn't? Well, I would say that Biden, uh, being an old politician, he knows what buttons to push. And Trump, being a newcomer, he just didn't know how to manage it. He was technically not very, let's say, able to do things. I remember when uh, Trump, for instance, tried to respond to Twitter uh, ban, and he even made some decree about it. I spoke about it with Ron Unz. And Ronald says, oh, pay no attention to decrees of Trump because he can't really, he doesn't know how to do things. And indeed, uh, Ron Unz was right about it. Uh, nothing came out of this Trump's decree. He didn't know how to manage. And the same thing, he didn't know how to arrange for elections, that elections would be more or less honest. He couldn't even do that. And um, I remember uh, Syria withdrawal. He wanted to withdraw troops from Syria. And then afterwards, um, an American representative in Syria wrote about it, how I cheated Trump. You know, that was amazing to, to read such thing that a man would not be afraid of, of saying how he cheated his president. But he was not afraid at all. Uh, Xi Trump, and they told him, yeah, yeah, we withdrew everything, but they didn't withdraw anything. They drew more forces. So that was a bit of problem. The Trump, who had good ideas and who had um, uh, good impulses and good nature, I presume, was unable to do things he wanted to do. He just didn't know how to do it. Biden is an old political beast, and he is a man who knows how to do things. That is, you know, like me and you, we know how to operate a mic. Uh, we know how to, let's say, push a button so a mic will work. And uh, he was just technically unable to do it. And I, I think, you know, if it would not be Biden, the United States would never leave Afghanistan. Because um, you see that basically so many people now speak, I mean, why to leave? And that is, um, uh, I don't know whether you noticed, but um, uh, Tony Blair, the man who pushed England into Iraqi war, he said, no, we should not have left Afghanistan at all. Why such silly idea that a long war should be over? It should never be over. And that is the same opinion in the New York Times. So Biden went against practically everybody, against deep state, against um, allies, 
and he succeeded to push it through. I became really, let's say, for a while, I began to admire uh, Biden much more than I ever did before. I would never believe it would happen, but it happened. He really succeeded to make it. Right. Yeah, that actually does show us that maybe Biden isn't isn't quite as 100% awful as many of us have always thought. And I guess during the Obama administration, Biden was considered kind of the, the House peacenik. Apparently, Hillary was a lot more um, interventionist, and Biden was generally much less so. So you could be right. And you're also right about Trump being unable to get anything done and having his underlings bragging about sabotaging him. I remember, I think it was also in Woodward's book, Fear, that Trump's advisors bragged about stealing uh, executive orders and such from Trump's desk, because if they could just steal stuff off of Trump's desk, Trump would forget about it and he wouldn't pursue it. Uh, so an administration where all of his underlings are constantly bragging about sabotaging his initiatives is a very strange kind of administration. And so I think you're right that obviously Biden is much more competent, even in his dotage, than uh, than Trump <laughs> so, ever was. Uh, so, so, and you mentioned Blair, and it's funny you mentioned that because I actually just, just before we began speaking, I sent off a new article to Crescent International uh, that goes into Blair's new article. Uh, and, and Blair is basically saying that the crusade against Islam is uh, is so important that we we should never have turned away from it. Uh, he, he says radical Islam is still the same problem that it always was, and that 9/11 illustrated. And uh, he he said he promises a new, even longer article showing that this problem of radical Islam has been around for a hundred years. And he says the essence of this problem is the belief that Muslim people are disrespected and disadvantaged because they're oppressed by outside powers and their own corrupt leadership, and that the answer lies in Islam returning to its roots and creating a state based not on nations but on religion. And I think Blair is largely accurate in describing that, but I think that's a solution, not a problem. And it's certainly not a good reason for the West to be running around murdering millions of people and invading other people's countries. Exactly, exactly. No reason to do it whatsoever. You know, uh, obviously our views are always shaped by our own experiences. And my experience was of Muslims and Christians doing away, doing together things just fine in Palestine. It's, it's not like, you know, people don't, are not aware of differences. They are aware of differences. They live sometimes separately in, in different villages. But when there is a real threat, they know how to form a united front against the dangers that, that goes their way. So, yes, I, I agree with you absolutely. The way of Blair was bad for England, was bad for the Middle East. And um, that is obviously something that I, that's why I was so happy when Jeremy Corbyn became the leader of uh, uh, labor. Uh, but alas, it didn't last for a long time because then they immediately started to scream at his anti-Semite. And this very good man uh, had to lose the power. Right. Well, uh, Tony Blair, you know, Bush, Bush's poodle is, is quite a vicious poodle these days. He, he called Biden's uh, pullout imbecilic. Uh, that's that's pretty impolite language for a poodle to use. Uh, yes, absolutely. 
and and uh, and I agree with you that uh, people of different faiths uh, should be pulling together against this kind of common threat of uh, ultra liberalism and and billionaire rule turning into post humanism. And that's where Blair goes completely wrong. He argues that the, you know, this radical Islam is a problem because it's a, it's a political ideology and an exclusionary and extreme one because in a multi-faith and multicultural world, uh, Islam holds that there's only one true faith and that we should all conform to it. And I think he's, Blair gets this exactly backwards. You know, Blair is a Catholic and traditionally Catholics have been pretty exclusionary and said, you know, everybody else is going to hell and we're the only ones that got it right. Whereas in Islamic lands, there always have been protected Christian and Jewish minorities. Um, so I, I think this is interesting how Blair is protecting the kind of traditional, uh, or projecting this kind of tra- traditional my way or the highway kind of uh, version of Christianity onto Islam. Yes, absolutely. It would, it's also a nice thing, you know, to get out of this endless COVID uh, preoccupation. We all have to, you know, write about it, think about it, do about it, and it became so tiresome. Yes, you know, people, yeah, people die, but I mean, isn't it something very normal that people die? Why kind of should one be so upset? Uh, that is one of those good things about religious folk, uh, or believing God, let's say, believing in God like we are. Uh, because we are, we know that yes, there is a moment when we shall die and we sh- when we shall go to God and that would be c- quite alright. Nothing to be so much afraid of. But people who do not believe in God, they have it pr- this problem because they think there is nothing but only this short life on earth. And after that they go into, they disappear. Well, we know that we don't. <laughs> that's why we can take it much more easy. Yeah, that's true. And of course, there are some Muslims, for example, who say, trust in Allah, but tie your camel. That's a famous prophetic hadith, uh, which also could be translated as trust in God, but use your reason. And, and so there is a sort of a dis- discussion about what was, you know, what's a reasonable way to look at this, this COVID pandemic? And I, I'm sort of halfway between, you know, you and many other, uh, folks, uh, who, who think that it's really, uh, it's, it's grossly exaggerated and they're panning, panicking people to take away our freedom and so on. But I also basically agree with a lot of Ron Unz's take on this too, especially the likelihood that it was unleashed by the same neocons more or less that did 9-11 as a botched bio-attack on China and Iran. Um, so maybe maybe you talk a little bit about that. You've, I'm sure you've been following that back and forth at the UNS Review, where Ron is taking on probably at least three-quarters of his readers uh, in, in arguing that COVID really is pretty much this medical scourge that we're told it is, and that some of these measures against it are, are not so unreasonable. Yes. Well, we see also now in Afghanistan that uh, the people of Taliban, they don't wear masks, they do, they do not want any vaccination, they refuse to uh, surrender to, uh, to the COVID narrative, and it seems to me that they are doing all right. And uh, in Israel, for instance, everybody is vaccinated, and these people still, you know, live and die. And when they want to do something public, they do for 200,000 people 
a gay parade. So, you know, one would say, if you are so afraid of spreading disease, why to do gay parade? Because gay parade for them is some sort of religion that they have to do it. But Taliban, for them, the conquest, uh, the takeover of power was more important. And that was the time when they disregarded, uh, you know, natural fear about uh, the disease that is all, all around. Um, but and it's also there is another funny thing. I don't know whether you noticed it that in the beginning there were commercial airlines that um, some Afghani people tried to fly away with, but those uh, commercial airlines they all demanded a valid uh, PCR test, and you know it's not very easy thing to. Provide for in, in Kabul in uh, falling to pieces Kabul. You, you don't think so, the, the Kabul airport has a has a booth where people can just easily walk up and get their PCR test? Huh? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that was anyway kind of one of those funny things. But now really, it's, it's a time when we don't have to think about uh, this stuff, and that's already good good thing. That's true. It's, it's, it's quite the uh, distraction. But unfortunately, I think we're going to be right back in, in the COVID narrative uh, soon. And, and the, uh, the U.S. apparently just approved one of the vaccines, uh, gave it full approval, which now is a green light for more vaccine mandates. And I'm wondering how things are in Russia on that front. Uh, and and you know, is, it, is it comparable there? What, I know we talked about this a little bit before, but I'm, I'm wondering sort of what, what the situation is like right now in Russia in terms of the, the sort of push for vaccination, the propaganda, and, and any resistance that may be out there. Well, um, you, you see, Russians are not very keen on getting vaccinated. Um, they are not sure that it will going to, going to help. And more, of, more than that, there is also a feeling that when you begin vaccinating, then the amount of uh, cases, what they call uh, the infections, is going up very rapidly. That is something we observe everywhere, in Israel, in Iceland, in Malta, in all, every country where they had really big vaccination campaign. So basically, very strong vaccination campaign was the case only in Moscow. Outside of Moscow, it, it was usually quite soft. And then now Russia has general elections in a month's time. And Putin and his people are obviously quite worried how they will succeed to, to go through the elections. And they felt that pushing for vaccination is something that alienates a lot of their voters. And they completely changed the narrative. Putin spoke about it a couple of days ago when he said there would be no, man, no mandate for vaccinations, that it would be a question of free choice. And if somebody is forcing you, you can always complain and we shall stop the, those that force you. So it came more or less to the voluntary thing. And, you know, as a voluntary thing, I think it, it's quite all right. It doesn't annoy people too much. And now, now it seems to be quite, you know, tolerable. 
uh, in the big department stores, you are asked to put a mask when you pay. You can, you know, go through shop without mask, but when you want to pay, then they ask you, please put your mask because we have a camera that will immediately complain if we don't say that. And, and this is in uh, Moscow? In Moscow, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in a big shop, let's say. That's how it would be. But otherwise, you, you don't see people in, in masks on the street. Um, outside, there is nobody in the mask. And then even inside, not too many of them. And basically, it seems that people are not not particularly worried about it. Though they say that um, Russia is in the red zone, meaning it has a lot of uh, COVID and a lot of deaths. But somehow, you know, people do not take those things very seriously. Have there been hospitals swamped with dying COVID patients? That was what all of these restrictions were supposed to be about, was preventing uh, uh, the basic, uh, you know, overwhelming of hospital systems and healthcare systems, which then could have produced a lot more deaths than would have happened without them. So that, that was the rationale originally. And I'm wondering if in, in Russia there has been a, a problem with hospitals getting overwhelmed or not. Well, no, no, the hospitals were not overwhelmed. And people try to stay out of hospitals, mainly because it's very easy to get infection in the hospital. You know that there are what they call iatrogenic diseases. That is something that is caused by bacillus that live in hospitals. And they are extremely strong because they are practically immune to antibiotics. They are immune to all kinds of medicines extremely harsh uh, sort of uh, uh, bacillus. And uh, that is big chance, you know, to get such a disease if you are in a hospital. That's how people see it. And that's why, obviously, they do try not to get into hospital in the first place. Nowadays, it's also people know how to treat it, more or less. So it's uh, unless there is some kind of big problem, then it's not necessary to go to a hospital. Right. Well, you're right about the iatrogenic diseases being such a huge problem. There have been studies here in the U.S. that have said that it's possible that these iatrogenic diseases, which mean, of course, uh, illnesses caused by the medical treatment itself, are the leading killer in the United States. There was one study in 2003, I think it was, that found about three-quarters of a million deaths per year caused by these doctor or healthcare caused illnesses, which made it the leading killer in the U.S. And others, other studies have shown somewhat less than that, but still, uh, it's, it's outlandish, many hundreds of thousands minimum. So. Yes. Yeah, dangerous, dangerous, very dangerous thing. You know, because of this thing in Norway, uh, where I was this summer for a while. In Norway, they practically f uh, stopped using, using antibiotics because they say if we use antibiotics, then uh, 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 we, we get then the new bacillus that can, that are used to antibiotics and that's no good. So better trying to use them as sparingly as possible. And that is obviously one of the way, one of the ways to solve the problem. But obviously the problem is there and the very idea of those big hospitals 
uh, has this problem, you know, that uh, it's very easy to get a disease there. Indeed. And, and so actually COVID may not be killing as many people as doctors do, even if we accept the worst case figures for uh, 2020, I think officially perhaps uh, half a million people, uh, give or take a uh, hundred thousand or two would have died of COVID in the United States in 2020, but three quarters yeah, yeah. of a million died from medical care. So, so doctors yes. kill more people than COVID as I, as I wrote for American well, Free Press. Well, you know, in, in Sweden, uh, we never had um, any lockdown, not even a single day of lockdown and people do not wear masks. And still Sweden is going through it rather all right. So probably it's not that simple. Probably there are so many other things that are connected to it, whether people are basically healthy, whether they, they feed well, whether they have fresh air. Those things probably play a very big part in whatever happens. And we're not allowed to say that because we'll be censored for supposedly spreading uh, medical misinformation. I've gotten strikes on my YouTube channel. For, you say that fre fresh air and sunlight are good for you, and they censor you for medical misinformation. It's unbelievable. Uh, so uh, and, and speak, speaking of this, these COVID issues, you mentioned the fact that uh, there are places where the hospitals have stopped using antibiotics for fear of breeding antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And there are experts out there, uh, people like Gert Vandenbosch and the Nobel laureate Luc Montagnier, who say that something similar is likely to be happening with COVID vaccines in that these COVID vaccines are aiming at simply, you know, just one protein in this COVID virus, the spike protein, and they're leaky vaccines, meaning that they are not sterilizing vaccines that would prevent people from contracting and spreading the illness. All they do is really mitigate its effects. Uh, so what that means is that people with the vaccines are going to be kind of Petri dishes in which the viruses in them that can handle the vaccines and that can still spread and multiply uh, and shed uh, even in an environment of a vaccinated person's body, those viruses are going to succeed and spread. And so the vaccines are actually breeding vaccine-resistant strains. Uh, and Gert Vandenbosch thinks this could become a, a complete disaster. And I, I think Montagnier and others believe that as well. I don't know if that to me that that's actually the single strongest argument that I've seen against the mass vaccination campaign. I'm wondering if you've seen that and what your take is. You know, you, you know, as for me, I am not against vaccination at all. I think let every person uh, make uh, his or her own decision about it. Just kind of, you know, less hysterics about it. And I think everyone uh, read about it, heard about it, uh, knows about it, and let every person decide by himself or herself whether they want it or not. And that's kind of basically my attitude to it. Very kind of, you know, laissez faire. Uh, let people take care of it by themselves. But I'll tell you something that sounds almost like a joke. In Israel, there was a group of 30 uh, tourists that went to Iceland. All 30 Israelis were vaccinated for, to, the, to the full extent. 
And Iceland, they went there because Iceland is also fully vaccinated. And you will laugh, but all 30 Israelis became sick of COVID. Really? Well, where is your laughter? Is is this like an ethnic joke that, you know, Israelis and the Icelanders, uh, (laughs) yes, indeed, it sounds like a joke, but uh, I mean, that's kind of truth. That's an upsetting truth. People fully vaccinated go to the fully vaccinated. I I think I know the punchline, Israel. The, the punchline is that they, they caught it uh, when their plane st- stopped in 100% vaccinated Gibraltar on the way. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Uh, well, you know, let's look uh, forward uh, and see what happens in Afghanistan, which is now kind of trying to do things li- like uh, Belarus did. Uh, and they did it like Swedes, basically without um, any, any, anything, any measures. And, you know, probably it's also a way, but, you know, in every country, uh, let them do it the way they like it. And I hope they will sort it out eventually. Do you think that this countryside versus city motif that we see in Afghanistan with the Taliban representing the countryside uh, is similar to the situation in, let's say, the United States right now, where a lot of the red world tends to be the countryside and the blue world is the cities. And, of course, the, the blue world uh, is part of the, the anti-COVID religion and the pro-feminism LGBTQ religion and all that. And then the red world of the countryside, uh, not so much. And I'm, I'm wondering if, if we could see almost some kind of global pattern here where where you know countryside versus city becomes sort of the the new political division well it it could be the case i wouldn't really know i wouldn't be able you know to answer it for afghanistan as far as i understand in afghanistan uh, the, uh, the, there was one big problem the country was very poor at the time of american invasion and people who had money and that is first of all it was American army. And the second, even bigger spender was NGOs, European NGOs who came there mainly to, uh, to deal with a uh, female uh, question. And uh, they had a lot of money and they spent a lot of money. But uh, officials had very little of it. So they had to take bribes in order to survive in the new circumstances. Without NGOs, without American army, I think that Afghanistan will cool down and probably things will sort out. It's a big problem when you have many, many rich foreigners in a very poor country. And um, that is obviously a a receipt for trouble. That's that's right. Yeah, a lot of these countries have problems like that, if less intense, when you know they have a kind of a local comprador bourgeoisie that interacts with the outside world and especially the West, and they live at a you know, upper middle class plus standard, and the vast majority of the people who are not part of that class uh, suffer. And it seems that Iran has done a good job uh, in cause, you know, basically mitigating that problem, partly thanks to the sanctions and so on, that they don't have so much of a comprador bourgeoisie as the intermediary you know between the, the Western. Uh, money interests and the local people. 
and of course the local people here are the countryside that we're talking about and the the uh, city people and the wealthy comprador types are are the uh, the blue uh, city people in spades so yeah i i think that actually is is a kind of a, a global pattern that, that we're seeing uh so we're we're joyful about this uh afghanistan news it's a welcome relief from all of the covid doom saying do you think there will ever be in our lifetimes some kind of similar joyful news about the liberation of Palestine? Well, uh, inshallah, inshallah, inshallah. <laughs> inshallah, yes, that will be obviously very good. We, especially we need so little for it. Just, you know, give equal rights for everybody in the country and that's all. Something, you know, that was done uh, everywhere, 100 years, 200 years ago, 150 years ago. It's not something that even, you know, happens somewhere else nowadays. That Palestine is probably the only place where you have um, two more or less equal populations, one with rights and another without rights. And obviously just, you know, giving people rights would practically solve the most important problems of Palestine. So I'm kind of not pessimistic at all about it. I think, you know, it's not that very difficult even to make. So basically just an equal protection clause in the Israeli constitution, if it were obeyed uh, and applied fully across all Israeli territory, including the occupied territories, would essentially solve the problem. That's amazing. Just one little, <laughs> one little constitutional item could essentially solve the problem. Yes, yes. Saying that you know people are kind of equal. Uh, that would be a sh- shocking thing. That the, the, there should be no law, there should be no decree or whatever which uh, differentiates between two different people because of their origin, ethnicity, religion. You know, something very simple. That's not, not a complicated law, you know. Such laws, as I say, were promoted 200 years ago everywhere. And uh, maybe it's right time to bring it to Palestine too. And it's interesting how here in the United States, even though we do have an equal protection clause, we also have now essentially uh, accepted and internalized the idea that reverse discrimination in various forms, like uh, quotas and so on, is is okay. And, and again, it, it does seem to me that the conservatives have a good argument when they say that really we should just be uh, legally treating everybody equally, you know, just a, a real equal protection clause with no exceptions for reverse discrimination would solve the problem in the United States, just like in Israel and everywhere uh, else. Absolutely, absolutely. I agree with you. I also think there is no need for extra protection for anybody, nor for women, neither for blacks, nor for Jews. I say everybody should have the same, and uh, I think that it will sort out, because, you know, everybody can manage in our world, and without additional discrimination, I think it would be just better. And it's kind of funny how, I mean, laughable almost, how if you say that, what you just said would get you categorized as a racist among a lot of the, the woke uh, people today. Like if you tweeted something like that, supporting absolute non-discrimination, period, uh, the woke people will call you a racist for not wanting to atone for the history of discrimination on the basis of race and sex and gender and LGBTQ and so on. 
Well, they would call everybody racist. I mean, why to pay attention? You know, I became uh, very much immune to this sort of accusations after being called anti-Semite. Then after that, you take being called racist very much in your stride. <laughs> you don't pay, pay attention to it all that much. And uh, basically, you, you know, you said in the beginning that we know each other for 20 years. And uh, indeed, and I remember that 20 years ago, we had to go through all these things when we were accused of uh, Holocaust denying or whatnot. So, uh, I mean, as for me, I never even bothered about denying anything. But the, anyway, that's how we were called Holocaust deniers and racists and anti-Semites and whatnot. But eventually, it, it steeled me and probably you against these sort of accusations. Now they can, you know, call us whatever they want. It really wouldn't move us at all anymore. Well, no, we take it as a badge of honor to get a, a fatwa from the ADL. <laughs> I, I, I've had people very jealous of me, especially a few years ago. I went through a period where I, I was getting more ADL attacks than anybody else, and uh, everybody was jealous. <laughs> well, speaking of things that will get you ADL attacks, Israel, how about this this paragraph in your article in which you mention the, uh, the Germans, when they left Auschwitz, were followed by hundreds of Jews who followed them westward. And among them were uh, Elie Wiesel, the Holocaust writer. Uh, these Jews uh, who fled Auschwitz following the Germans uh, were afraid of the Red Army that was coming to liberate them and preferred the Germans they knew. And, and it's interesting you mentioned that because that's the same story that Gilad Atzman mentions when, when he, yes. he, he, he doubts, you know, he, he's a sort of a, he's open to Holocaust revisionism in part because of that. He says, if, if they were really, if, if, if Auschwitz was what we were told, why would these uh, Jews have followed the Germans and tried to remain with the Germans? Yes, well, uh, they didn't uh, know what Red Army will bring to them, you know, they were afraid, you know, of, like now, so many people in um, Kabul are afraid of Taliban. Uh, you know, the, the, a boy who died, the boy who died in Afghanistan because he tried to hang on the um, uh, airplane. Now we know that it's not some guy who was guilty or whatever. It was a young footballer, a 19-year-old boy who played football. And he thought that in the West he would become much more rich than he would become in his native country playing football. You know, people are that silly. The boy decided to climb on airplane and he thought he would survive and would come to America and would play football and would make a lot of money. I mean, you have to be really kind of sick of mind to see it in such in such a way. And the same was there in Auschwitz when those Jews said, well, you know, we know those Germans, we can go. And uh, don't forget that it's, uh, Auschwitz was a biggish place. And in the, uh, uh, they had a lot of Jews who were doing uh, works of translators and uh, some kind of other intermediaries between the Germans and the rest um, of prisoners. And they thought also probably it would be safer to go with Germans and then to stay back, and who knows how 
other prisoners will treat them. That's, you know, something similar of this sort. Right, right. It's, it definitely raises a, a lot of questions. Uh, and it's it's true that it's the, the footballer you mentioned who thought he could he cling to the airplane and come to the West to make a lot of money is kind of an extreme example, maybe almost a Darwin Award deserving example of something that exists in, in somewhat less extreme form where there are people in a lot of places that have a very, very tough life and they imagine that it's going to be better somewhere else. And the United States has, has gotten the benefit of this PR telling the whole world that it's so wonderful. Everything is perfect here. Like the Iranian exiles in Los Angeles, you know, beam out CIA propaganda, uh, showing that they all have these huge mansions with swimming pools in Hollywood, you know, and so on and so forth. And they try to convince the Iranians that, you know, that's what they'll have if they just buy into the American system and so on. Uh, it seems like there's a real successful sort of pro-Western, pro-U.S. Uh, media op that has succeeded in, in um, convincing a lot of these folks that the West is a paradise. Uh, <laughs> how long will that last? Yes, that's a, a really amazing thing. And, you know, there is nothing actually um, that is, was likely to change it unless first-hand experience. Russians were also very much sure that in the United States it's sheer paradise and a lot of them went to America and came back. And now, I mean, people are not very, very keen on going anywhere because they know that everywhere it's more or less about the same. Always kind of small differences here, small differences there, but there is no absolutely no promise that you will get a better deal somewhere else unless in your own home country. From this point of view, experience is obviously a very important thing and that uh, something that is very good that people get get this experience and they get real feedback. Uh, one of the problems of the Soviet Union was that so few people went abroad to the West. It was so difficult to go abroad. And eventually the, the, all this mythology of uh, wonderful United States uh, came around and, and that's why that kind of a little bit screwed the minds of so many people. I remember there is a, a wonderful uh, film, an, an American film. I don't know whether you watched it. It's called Stranger Than Paradise. Oh, yes. I watched that long ago. Jim Jarmusch was the director, as I recall. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Very good that you do remember. That is one of the actually first films that were, let's say, more or less mainstream that showed the Americans who live almost in the same way as they live in Hungary or in Iran or anywhere else, where they don't have huge houses, where they don't have great cars, something kind of much more normal. And uh, this film could be a revelation, you know, if it would come in the right time. That's a great point. It's funny you mentioned that film because I'm actually in the middle of a new novel by Omar al-Akkad called This Strange Paradise, which is about uh, refugees uh, who shipwreck and, and wash up on a Greek island. Uh, and it, it shows uh, things from the point of view of these refugees who were <laughs> having a pretty tough time and being brainwashed by these kinds of myths about how wonderful things will be over on the other side. Well, we, we've pretty much hit hit the end. We only have a uh, maybe a minute, minute and a half. So could you give us a very succinct uh, t opinion 
on whether this collapse of the U.S. position in Afghanistan portends a total collapse of U.S. Uh, unipolar global domination or pretensions to it? Well, uh, I don't think so. I think, you know, uh, the American power is in decline. I myself wrote it in decline for many years. <laughs> if we we'll have to look for a point when the decline began, I would say maybe 2013. That was a time when uh, Obama decided not to bomb Syria. That was a very important uh, moment for the Middle East. But since then, you know, United States uh, picked up more things than it is doing. And I think it's impossible at this time to predict when it will fall to pieces or whether it will, would fall completely down or not. Uh, better, you know, not to kind of be um, overtly optimistic um, about those developments. But for sure, the uh, United States is slightly, slowly uh, decaying, and that's probably not a bad thing for all the world. Uh, for, the, for the rest of the world, but for the United States itself, I think the idea of more isolationism means less interventionism. That would be something that would be very good for America, which has incredible potential, has um, uh, wonderful educated uh, folk. Uh, they have uh, uh, no, not too bad things at all. Basically, they could sort themselves out. So, you know, I don't, I'm not very pessimistic, let's say, about what will happen in the United States. They should obviously sort out their problems and go less abroad to make trouble for somebody else. But if they will succeed to make that, I think then uh, heaven uh, is the limit. Okay, heaven is the limit. Well, I agree with you, and I, I hope uh, the United States can learn how to fix up its own problems and be a normal country within its own borders and live uh, peacefully with the rest of the world, inshallah. Well, thank you so much, Israel Shamir. It's always good talking with you. Uh, keep up the great work. God bless. Congratulations on your article, The Sheer Joy of Afghanistan. Look forward to talking again. Thank you. Bye, then. Bye-bye.